Well, I'm, I'm taking five minutes now. David gave most of it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's great, always great to be uh, to come to North Pine. And uh, when uh, Dale uh, was uh, speaking and praying, and he mentioned uh, the steadfast love of God. Now, <clears throat> uh, I over the last few years have looked more at that in the Bible. And uh, I've, I've got about 60 pages of notes on every occurrence of the word uh, in the Bible where steadfast love is. And uh, that's not a bad translation, but I really think that it should be translated God's relational commitment to us, God's loyalty to us. Uh, it's such a wonderful word. Um, and uh, as I think about that, I think of North Pine, and I think of North Pine's commitment uh, to mission, uh, to what we have been doing in Bangladesh, uh, and I'm, uh, yeah, that reminds me. It's a reflection of God's, uh, of that steadfast love, of God's relational commitment. Now, Peter, is there, yeah, oh, have I got a, right out. Um, uh, as uh, David said, I've been working with uh, Global Interaction uh, for a long time. And I've thought to myself, a lot changes since I went out in 1977, uh, people didn't travel that much. It was, uh, you know, it was, you didn't have the money or the time or whatever, and it was so expensive. Uh, so uh, uh, my previous uh, journey overseas had been to Bribey Island. Uh, and I can still remember... Uh, my folks and uh, other people coming to farewell me from the old Brisbane airport. And I arrived in Singapore. Eek. I was so nervous. I had a, a voucher for a taxi and I got into this taxi and the taxi driver loaded two African guys in. They were as nervous as me. And uh, we're driving along, he drops the Africans off, and then he's driving, and he says to me, I've got a sister. I said, I've got one too. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, what's this? And, uh, yeah, it was when I arrived in Bangladesh. I arrived in Thailand first and thought, oh, Bangkok, this is... Bangkok in the late 70s wasn't uh, uh, still feeling the effects of the Vietnam War. And uh, I thought, oh, this is a grotty. I went to Bangladesh, and a year later I came on a holiday to Bangkok, and I thought, wow, this is wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> to make a phone call in Bangladesh in the late 70s, you had to go through, now for those under the age of... Um, and I maybe 50, uh, we had to go through an operator. That is, you had to phone up the exchange and then through the exchange would put you through. And so to phone Australia <coughs> was quite something. Took anything from uh, one hour to 12 hours to get a connection. Now, you just grab your mobile phone and uh, you can call anywhere in the world. I can call Bangladesh, uh, I can be in Bangladesh, and I can call anywhere in the world. It's just astonishing. And people travel. So there's been huge change. Uh, but some things don't change. And that's what I really want to share tonight, is that I have a great concern is that in the midst of all modernity that we do not forget what Jesus has said to us and what he has modelled for us. So as uh, David uh, uh, pointed out, I work in Bangladesh with Global Interaction 
and uh, it's there you go. David gave most of the information, uh, so I'll, I'll forget about it. And that's the usual commuter train, <laughs> not really. That's that's at fi festival times. Uh, uh, it's every inch of a train gets uh, packed. 160 million or thereabouts in two-thirds or about half to two-thirds the size of Victoria. So it's a very crowded place. Now, maybe I've said this to you before, but just to emphasise it, if the whole population of the world was put into Australia, there'd be about 3,100 people per square mile. So, sorry, this is for the oldies, for the per square mile. Um, <clears throat> The present population density of Bangladesh is 3,600. So that just gives you an indication of how many people. And uh, as David rightly pointed out, they are the single largest uh, unreached people group, the single largest ethnic group of Muslims. Now, what do I mean by ethnic? I mean people who have a same language and who recognise, who, who see themselves as one people group. Now, Indonesia has more Muslims, Pakistan has more Muslims, but they are divided into different ethnic groups. But the Bengalis uh, are, uh, are the, the single largest ethnic group of Muslims. They also have the honour to be have the fourth largest language in the world. And I don't mean that in terms of how many letters. I mean the number of people who regard it as their mother tongue. Uh, the first one is Mandarin, the second is English, the third is Spanish, and the fourth is Bengali. So, uh, and I have the privilege of having learnt that wonderful language. I mean, Bangla Boltabari, and I said at this particular time uh, that uh, 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 Jake is a very handsome young man and uh, that uh, uh, any uh, girl would be proud to be with Jake. <laughs> okay, not really. I, uh, <clears throat> no, I'm sure it's true. Uh, but uh, yes, Bengali is a wonderful language. And that uh, uh, it's, I, it's a privilege for me to have learnt that beautiful language. Um, okay, now uh, global interaction <clears throat> is really Baptist churches focused on the cross-cultural sharing of Jesus, and we believe that Jesus is the greatest gift that we can share. Uh, with people. Now David talked about uh, symbiosis which is uh, one of one aspect of our ministry and I'm not going to talk a great deal about that tonight uh, because uh, I want to focus on what I'm concerned about which is how uh, we share Jesus with people. So, uh, as global interaction, it, it, our focus is to see Jesus shared with people in a way, A, that they can understand, B, can see that it's relevant to them, and uh, C, then begin to respond to in a way that's appropriate for their society. So to empower people, communities, to follow Christ in their own distinctive ways. Now, David rightly pointed out that I worked for 14 years in association with established churches in Bangladesh. <clears throat> and I have uh, had, a lot of them died. <laughs> you know, it's the thing when you, as you get older, peer pressure um, diminishes. <laughs> Let me assure you, yes. That, uh, uh, so I had great relationships with people within national churches. But uh, uh, I remember very clearly in my first term in Bangladesh, so it must have been 1977, and I go to a Baptist church in the provincial town of Maimon Singh. That church was established in 1867 by a Swiss man who worked for the British Baptists. 
And there it was, 1867. I walked in and it was like a a form of service uh, like the 50s in Australia. Except that the men were on one side and the women on the other and it was in Bengali. The form was exactly the same. And I thought, hmm, I, I wonder... And uh, that wondering has been with me uh, ever since and caused me and others with whom I've worked to seek and to, to find whether there is any other way. In what we share, do we share the forms that we use in our following of Jesus or do we share Jesus? Now, uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, yeah, seven billion people in the world today or thereabouts, and most of them don't have a chance to hear about Jesus. And that, I believe, is where the community of faith who are followers of Jesus need to concentrate. No one else is going to do it. People outside church walls who are not followers of Jesus, running symbiosis or having symbiosis, there's lots of people who are interested in helping the poor. Well, as we're facing uh, financial problems, uh, the board of symbiosis will probably say, Morris, what are you saying? Uh, But uh, people outside the church are willing to give. Uh, for good purposes. But it is only the people who have followers of Jesus who are, who are interested or should be interested in sharing the message that God has sent through Jesus. Now, uh, you've probably seen this before, but I'll, I know, if you're like me, a bit of a short memory. Uh, and now I've even forgotten the name of the guitar player, the tall bloke. Grant, that's right. I knew there was a G there somewhere. I had Greg, Jake, and uh, Mitch, and uh, I had them all, and, and, and Rochelle and Janine. And I thought, blow me down. <coughs> anyway, so you know, uh, so uh, we forget. I forget. Most of the resources of the Christian church throughout the world are concentrated in areas where there are most Christians. Well, no, uh, this is not to lay a guilt trip on us. It's important. Uh, it's important to have our witness within our own areas. Uh, but when you see how little is often spent or... or uh, Personnel who are involved in uh, reaching out to the unreached, then, then you think to yourself, hey, where is the Australian ideal of a fair go? Now, about 20 years ago, <laughs> one day, as I was complaining to God, why are there so few people here to do what we're trying to do? And I felt God say to me three things. I believe he said to me, I want Gideon's army. I don't want lots of people. I want those who are ready to do battle. Second, I want Bangladeshis to be at the forefront, not the foreigners. And number three, I don't want too much unaccountable money. Because, folks, I can sadly say to you, in the developing world, unaccountable money within the Christian church is a curse. It is simply a curse. I was at a church two weeks ago, and uh, after speaking, this guy came up to me and said, Oh, oh, that was really interesting what you said. He said, Oh, I'll really think about that. He said, We... We took up a collection, a group of us, to help a pastor in, uh, in India so they could build a church building. 
And uh, we collected $36,000 and we sent it over there and the pastor put it into his bank account and lived off the interest. And I said, well, I could multiply that story by hundreds if not thousands. Because the West, thinking that money is the only answer and feeling guilty about how people are poorer, uh, can do foolish things. And one of the things that's increasingly getting under my skin is that often in the church we're not honest about it. We somehow spiritualise everything and are afraid to tell the truth. And you know, at this stage of my life, I'm fed up with that. It's, it's, we follow Jesus who told the truth. Who made it, made it clear. And didn't spiritualise things so that we can't, we're not accountable. Anyway. As I regularly say, I quite enjoyed mathematics when I was a student and uh, in maths, uh, geometry was my favourite and I, that means I always go off on tangents. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, there'll be several tonight. Sign cos, tan. Yeah. Okay, uh, but you see, Jesus, Jesus is the message and Jesus' life is the method. So I'll read to you from John uh, chapter 20. And this is Jesus uh, at the end of his earthly ministry and he says this to his disciples. Uh, <clears throat> he said uh, th- to them that uh, uh, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. It's very simple. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So who was Jesus sent? Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 4, and verse 4 you'll find that it says that he was uh, at, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, he came into human society. He came into a particular culture and into a particular language at a particular time in human history. Now, I've never been to Palestine or Israel. Uh, I had some friends of my daughters who'd been there and they came back and told my daughters that the the, uh, effort to sell stuff to tourists make it quite disturbing. But you see, Jesus came into a particular place. Hinduism, uh, there's 10% of the population of Bangladesh are Hindus, and Hindus believe in uh, that, uh, that a God can be reincarnated or incarnated, come into the flesh. So of the three major Hindu gods, which are Brahma, Vishnu and Shiv, Vishnu, uh, they say, has appeared, in, uh, has appeared as Ram, Krishna and Chaitanya Dev. So at various times. But Jesus is not like that. Sometimes people complain and say, well, you know, why is Christianity so particular? Why is it that one people? Friends, the more I meditate on it, the more I find it just thrills my heart and soul that God regards human culture and language as so important that he sent his son into one. There is God's commitment to human language and culture writ big. You can read all the theological textbooks about it and all the rest of it, but it's Jesus coming into that society, living in that society, that is, is the most amazing message to us. The Word of God, the Son of God, who comes to live amongst us, born of a woman, born into a particular society and tradition. 
And the more I read the Gospels, and when I read them, I, I just say, wow, this is amazing. Now to me, and I've been reading the Bible since I was about 12. The reason was that there was an old uh, uh, SDA, Seventh-day Adventist pastor, who used to come and collect uh, papers of my mother and put them on his bicycle and take them away. And uh, one day he said to me, do you know it never rained uh, before the flood? No, I didn't know that. And he said, yep, it's in Genesis. Never rained before the flood. I started to read the Bible. And I can show you the little notebook that I took notes in. That little notebook was where I started reading the Bible for myself and writing it down. I had to read the authorised version. Hand up if you know what the authorised version is. Yes, all right, okay. It was uh, the version approved by the committee appointed by James II in 1611. All right, so, uh, you know, the language was rather uh, archaic. However, it was the only Bible in our house, and I started to read it. And I have been reading the Bible since that time. Uh, I've had the privilege of trying to learn uh, Hebrew and Greek. Now, the amount of Hebrew that I can remember is, um, yes, mm. uh, Greek, a bit better. So I've had this wonderful opportunity. And as I read through the life of Jesus, I constantly find new stuff. And I think, well, why didn't I say that before? I find this as Jesus interacted with his society. And uh, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just, yeah. But you see, when we read through, Luke's gospel is the only gospel which actually puts time into Jesus' life. And so you read that uh, at the age of 12, Jesus is, comes down to Jerusalem. And he comes with uh, Mary and Joseph, his parents, and the whole village. And they come down for the festival. And when the festival's finished, they all start the three-day journey back home. They have to walk home. Uh, you know, travel associates hadn't been found. You know, they didn't exist in Jerusalem at that time. So they have to walk home. And at the end of the first day of walking, Mary and Joseph realise that Jesus isn't with them. Now, now, I used to think, well, it's a bit slack on Mary and Joseph's part, but not when you live in a communal society. They just assumed he's there with all the rallies. You know? Those of you who maybe used to go holidaying in caravan parks at school holidays, and families, many families would go, and kids knew one another, and they'd play, and then the parents didn't have to worry. Because... It, it was communal. So at the end of the first day, they think, where is he? He's not here. They go back to Jerusalem. They spend three days looking for him. Could you imagine how Mary and Joseph felt? They've lost their first child. Where is he? What's happened to him? And finally they find him where? In the temple. A 12-year-old boy. And there they find that he's interacting with the best and brightest minds, the leaders of his society in the temple, and they also find that those men, those leaders, the intellectuals of his society, were amazed at the knowledge of this 12-year-old boy from the back blocks of rural Galilee. You know, at the age of 12, for me, in winter, it was soccer, or real football, as we like to call it. Uh, that was my focus. And in summer, it was cricket. And the rest of the time was just a fill-in. Uh, except, I should have to say, that's Sunday school. Uh, not sometimes, uh, you know, the Sunday school classes, but Sunday school picnics, Sunday school anniversaries, and Sunday school Christmas trees. You can see what a very limited childhood I had. Uh, 
They were great times. Okay, but there's Jesus, 12 years old. And he's interacting with these leaders of his society. Mary says to him, don't you see we're so worried about you? What's his response? Sorry, mum, sorry. Jesus says, don't you know, this is a 12-year-old, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? (laughs) A verse or two down, it says that Mary kept all these things in her heart. She knew this boy was different. The, The angel had told her so. His birth was different. She later had children. She knew he was different. And all these events she kept stored up in her heart. And then it says that Jesus went back with them and was obedient to his parents. So there we have... And then... When do we next hear about Jesus? Well, again, we have to go to Luke and we find in Luke that says that when he was about 30, now that means anything from 25 to 30, because in Leviticus uh, there's two uh, ways that you can, uh, that for males to be uh, judged whether they become adults. One is 25 and the other is 30. So Jesus is about 30. What was Jesus doing between 12 and, say, 28? What was he doing? Carpentry. Living in a little village called Nazareth, working in carpentry. Older brother to younger brothers and sisters. It says that he grew in, in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. We become so familiar with this story, but that is truly amazing. God's commitment to us as human beings is seen in the sending of Jesus. And he lived amongst us. And he focused, when he began his public ministry, on one group of people, the people that he was brought up amongst. Now, as he, uh, as he came towards the end of his ministry, he began to say to his disciples, to his followers, I have a bigger plan. But he concentrated on one people. And then he said to his disciples at the end, you can find in Matthew 28, that he said, go into all the world, preach the good news, teaching, baptising and making disciples. Actually in the Greek it is you make disciples. All the rest, the going, the preaching, the baptising and the teaching are qualifying verbs to the main thing and that is to make disciples people who will be followers faithful to Jesus. Now, uh, when I mentioned to you how Jesus is in the temple, have you ever thought of the amazing consciousness of Jesus when he says, I must be in my father's house? Jesus had this relationship from such an early age in which he called God Father. I've read, as I said, read through the Gospels many, many times. And the only time I can find when Jesus called God anything but Father is when he was on the cross. That's the only time I can find it. When he's on the cross and, uh, and, and he feels the separation from God. Then he says, uh, my God, my God, how or why Have you forsaken me? That's the only time that I can find where Jesus refers to God other than Father. So that sense of relationship, of intimacy with God, as Janine said, uh, on first name terms, there it was natural for Jesus. It wasn't natural for me. 
and I doubt if it's natural for any other human being. I know that the Muslims that I have uh, worked amongst, they, uh, God is a long way away. And they seek God. But there's no sense in which they can have an intimate relationship with him. And every Muslim that I have talked to who's come to faith in Jesus has said to me this, this is what I was looking for. Now Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So what does that mean? That, I believe, means that for us, language and culture and and the structure of human societies are so important. Jesus also said that the second law that is after loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind, the second law is love your neighbour as yourself or you do to others what you would have them do unto you. So if you want the deepest things of your life and your heart, do you want it in another language? Do you want it in a form that you're not familiar with? No. Part of the problem uh, of uh, modern uh, Islam, the extremist Islam, is that they are trying to impose a form and a culture upon everyone. Recently in Bangladesh, there have been a number of Bangladeshis killed, hacked to death, by, uh, by these religious extremists who want to uh, put fear into people so that they, w- that they will conform to their understanding of what it is to follow God. But that's not Jesus. That isn't Jesus. Jesus said, you do to others as you would have them do unto you. So if you want respect, if you want dignity, which I'm sure we all want, then we are obligated to give it to others. In the way that we help people, we need to think, are we destroying their dignity by the way that we help? If, you were very, if I was really poor and I couldn't educate my children, would I like the king of Saudi Arabia to come along and sponsor my children? I wouldn't. So what makes me think that people in another religion, that if I go and sponsor their children, that they'll be happy? We need to seriously figure out, work out what are the implications of what Jesus says to us, the very basics he said to us about how we do things. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. I want to give you just an example from someone whom I believe uh, followed more closely Uh, what Jesus intended in a cross-cultural situation, and that's Paul. And the best way to look at it is to read Acts chapter 17, where Paul talks to, where Paul speaks to totally uh, non-Christian, non-biblical people, non-Jewish people, people who didn't know the Bible. And there, as if you look at that passage, you will find that Paul uh, follows what I believe is inherent in what Jesus uh, said. When I was nine years of age, I went to this. I was going to this Baptist Sunday school. I was taken along to one of the biggest meetings ever held in Brisbane. Put your hand up if you think you know what it might be. What was it? Yes, the meetings where Billy Graham 
came to uh, Australia and he went to Melbourne. He went to all the capital cities. And the biggest crowds ever. As a nine-year-old boy, I can still see him there at the exhibition ground. Melbourne. They had more people in the Melbourne cricket ground than in grand final day. It was just amazing. And the impact on Australia was astonishing. Uh, studies have been done uh, in Sydney, because it's a very bad place, uh, uh, and they studied all the, all the crime statistics after the Billy Graham meetings of 1959. Domestic violence, drunkenness, robberies, all the statistics went down. 68, he came back and uh, there were, again, great meetings. But I would put to you now that if someone like Billy Graham with the gifting that uh, that a man had, uh, we would not get the same response. Because, you see, everyone knew a little bit about the Bible. I went to a a baby boomer's Sunday school. It was, you know, we, we nearly broke the, the weatherboard uh, cladding. There were so many of us in there. Our parents didn't come, but all the kids came. So we knew the stories of the Bible, but not now. Kids in school don't know. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, I was just amazed to hear someone in our state parliament say, oh, no, you can't have Tim Mander, he's too Christian. No, I won't, whether he should have been or not, I'm, that's not, but just a statement. That is, if you stand up and say you're a Christian uh, in uh, the modern media, then you, you looked at it as something strange. Our society has changed. And therefore, what Paul says in Acts 17 is relevant to us today. And if you read very carefully that passage, you will find that he speaks to people who don't have a biblical background, but he doesn't use the Bible. He doesn't quote it. He uses the Bible, but he doesn't quote it. He doesn't jump up and say, John 3.16. He just talks about how God has made the whole world and how you in your religious quest are seeking after God and God made you to seek after him. And then he quotes two uh, poets. He quotes two Greek poets. He doesn't quote uh, the Old Testament. He quotes two Greek poets. One is by the name of Epimenides the Cretan and uh, the other is Aratus. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. They are quotes from two Greek poets. So he uses that which they know. And then he talks to them and says, well, God has overlooked these times, but now God has sent someone uh, into this world by whom he will judge the world righteously, and of this he's given proof and that he's raised him from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, uh, that's a slide which shows uh, you can go there, where Paul actually stood and preached. It's Mars Hill in Athens. One day I may get there, but I haven't been there. Uh, And he stood there, and he gave that message to these people who didn't know the Bible. He spoke to them in a way that they could understand. Now, not all of them accepted it. And uh, he finished his message by saying, God has raised a man from the dead. Now, if you look very closely at what Paul said, you'll see three things. Number one, he knew his Bible. He knew it so well that he didn't have to quote it at people. Number two, he knew his own culture. And number three, he knew something of the culture of those people. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So language, culture, social structure are really important. How do we get to know them? People.
people. I was recently at a church and someone said to me, well, missionaries, they're so, you know, they're so expensive and uh, they fail and they do this. Hey, if anybody wants proof of that, I can give you ample proof. I know my own failures and I've seen the failures of my uh, colleagues and others. But, you know, when God wanted to do something, he didn't send money. <laughs> he didn't send some sort of message across the sky. He sent a person. He sent a person. And what I would like to challenge those churches and those communities of faith that I visit, there is no substitute for the sending of people to others. It is through personal communication that we see the real communication of the truth that God loves us. That we become his children. Jesus is the proof of that. Jesus is for all of us, for in our culture and in other cultures. Jesus is the answer. He is the answer to the struggles, to the seeking after God of people in every culture. But I am stand before you able to say that in going to one culture, as Jesus did, we see fruit. We see people responding to Jesus in their culture, not becoming foreigners, Becoming pe uh, people who are, remain true to their culture and yet have changed the centre of their being because they've realised that there is only one mediator between God and man and that's the person Christ Jesus. And that begins to change their life. They don't have to become like us. They need to follow Jesus in their society and culture. On Friday, I received a, uh, an email. And it was a Bible study in Bengali. And this was written by a man whom I've known for a number of years. And he was uh, giving some teaching to uh, his fellow uh, friends and relatives about Jesus and it was just to me it was just wonderful to see that it was not a copy of some sort of English sermon it was someone interacting with his society with his culture and what Jesus meant to them I thought this hey this is wonderful. This is what it's about. Empowering people to follow Christ in their own way. Now, modernity wants shortcuts. It has to happen straight away or within a short time. As I read this Bible, I don't see God in such a hurry. I see God working through that which he's committed to, which we need to be committed to. In January, I had a conversation with a man whom I hadn't had any uh, interaction with for about 15 years. His brother, I saw him quite regularly. His father was one of the first people in the area where we worked to come to faith. Uh, my senior colleague was there when this fellow, uh, the, the, this man, first came to faith. I was present when he was baptised. And uh, anyway, the father, he had about four or five children at that time. When he had five children, my senior colleague advised him to maybe take steps uh, to you know, limit the number. I came along at about number seven and, and gave him the same advice. End up, they end up with nine. So, you know, didn't listen to us foreigners. Uh, but the eldest son, 
Initially, uh, the father caused him a lot of problems because he, in his own society, he began to indicate that he was interested in a religion other than that which he was brought up in. Caused a lot of problems. And so initially, the oldest son uh, saw this as a threat to the family, but ultimately the eldest son came to faith, as did many of the other, ch- other children. And uh, this fellow worked with us for a couple of years and then he went off and started a little pharmaceutical business and uh, worked at that. And then he married a local girl, a girl from their area, which was quite remarkable because their family had a bit of uh, doubt about them. And in South Asia, in places like Bangladesh. If there's doubt about your social or religious identity, that is terrible. But anyway, this, uh, uh, the, fa- the parents of this girl allowed her to marry this fellow. A couple of years later, they had a child. That child was seriously disabled. So disabled that the uh, no communication, that no child could not walk. And uh, so here is the father having to go away to run the business that he has and the mother is looking after this severely disabled child. And in a country like Bangladesh, if you have a disabled child, then uh, many people ascribe that disability to some problem in the parents. You find it in the New Testament. So, uh, and then when the child was about three, the mother dropped dead, leaving this man with this severely disabled child. He had to go and work. His mother, that is the grandmother, looked after that child. Now, when I spoke to him in January, I said, how old is the boy now? 18, never moved off the bed, has to be carried. And he said to me, I said, you've done it really tough, Masood. And he said, yes, uncle. I said, I pray for you. And I have no, all I can say is that only in the sufferings of our saviour can I see any any comfort for you. And he said to me this, he said, Uncle, he said, I have not been able to remarry because of that stigma and because no woman will take up the care of a disabled child. So he said, I've not been able to remarry, I've not been able to do anything really well with my business. And he said, Sometimes I've thought that I would go mad. But he said, it is only Jesus who has prevented me. Only Jesus has kept me. I was so moved by this, and I thought, it is Jesus, only Jesus, who is the answer for us for our deepest needs and in our times of extremity. Our deepest needs can only be met by Jesus who has brought God's love to us in a way that we could never have received other than through his coming. Jesus said to his disciples, I asked him, you know, help us to pray. So he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And then he said, you know, ask, ask, knock and it will be given to you. Ask, and you will receive. And you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall not your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit to live within our lives and witness with our spirit that we are God's children. You know, money runs out, Strength runs out. I shaved my beard off and, as I said to Bill, you know, much more jowly than what I thought. 
it's, it's, you know, everything runs out, but you know, to have the Spirit of God dwelling within your heart is the greatest gift that any person can have. We are his children. We don't need to strive for it. We don't need to prove that we're good, prove that we're better. He takes us as his children. Jesus is the message. Jesus, the way that Jesus came, is the method. He is the answer. And it is people who communicate that. As a community of faith, I want to challenge you to find those people amongst yourselves whom God is calling to cross-cultural ministry. Most of us are not involved in cross-cultural ministry. We have a ministry to our own culture. And boy, have you got a big one. In Australia, you sure have. But amongst you, there are also people whom God has called to cross-cultural ministry and in the support of them is you fulfill that which Jesus had said. You fulfill that ministry of taking the message, the good news, to people other than our own culture. It's what Jesus wants. It's what Jesus instructed us uh, to do. So amongst you, uh, I, my prayer is find those people and support them. Because it's only through people that we can really communicate the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I want to thank you that in the that you use ordinary, frail people. I want to thank you that you show to us that there are no shortcuts that you want to use people. I want to thank you that you sent Jesus to live amongst us, to live in a particular time, in a particular place, and minister in the way that he did. But that you want that all people all cultures, all language groups should come to know your amazing love. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a good Father, that you want to give the best gifts to your children. Father, I pray uh, for uh, here at North Pine. I thank you for this faith community. I thank you for its consistency and its commitment. And I pray, Father, that uh, even amongst this group of people, that you would, those whom you are calling to be sent to other people. Lord, uh, only you can do this work. Father, I pray that uh, uh, in your way, you who are the Lord of the harvest will bring out those who are to be uh, those to bring in the harvest. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.